Episode 144, Lessons to Learn Now About Value-Based Contracts. Today, I speak with Julie Locklear, who is the Vice President and Head of Health Economics and Outcomes Research over at EMD Serono, Inc., which is an affiliate of Merck KGAA from Darmstadt, Germany. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It is game on relative to value-based contracts. We are fast getting to the place where not just the bleeding edge of the market is contracting based on outcomes instead of volume. So if you were waiting for a sign to start thinking about rolling out an innovative contract pilot, now is probably just about the end of the window to get some learnings in. Because as we all know, the best way to learn anything with the least amount of risk is to slowly increase scope and scale. So we got to take our knocks before the expectation is to cover bigger patient populations or engage in more broadly defined agreements. Today, I speak with Julie Locklear, who is the vice president and head of HEOR, Health Economics and Outcomes Research, over at EMD Serono, Inc. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Julie. Thank you, Stacey, for having me today. Innovation in pharma. You know, it's definitely not only possible to differentiate vis-a-vis products, but it's becoming increasingly apparent that it's also possible to differentiate with contract and value-based models, which is something that you have spent a lot of time working on. How are you tending to define value-based models or innovative contracting? Yeah, great question. I'm also excited to talk about this subject. It's it's one of my favorites. I think value-based agreements or value-based contracts has really changed over time. But I think, as you said, there are many opportunities that such agreements offer in the U.S. And I'll go back to a definition that one of my colleagues and, and mentors, Peter Newman, and his co-authors defined in an article that was featured in 2011 in Health Affairs. And I'll quote, a contract between a payer and a manufacturer in which the reimbursement for a drug is tied to the health outcomes achieved with real-world use, end quote. That definition, I've heard called any number of different things. Sure, sure. So given that many of these agreements have existed long before outside of the U.S., we also hear names such as risk-sharing agreements, conditional licensing, and as they come over and become more popular in the U.S., there's different versions or different names, including outcomes-based contracts, coverage with evidence, performance-based reimbursement, as well as pay-for-performance. And I think at times they can mean slightly different things, but at the end of the day, if you revert back to that definition where it really isn't a contract or an agreement between the payer and a manufacturer in which the reimbursement is for the drug is tied to health outcomes. I think that as long as we're all saying that is the definition, it comes by many names. And when you say health outcomes, you mean patient outcomes? Of course, of course. And, you know, before we kind of go any further, I think it's just really important to note that, you know, why we're all really here is improving patient outcomes is the goal. 
And so regardless of any type of agreement, you know, ultimately the decision of appropriate treatment for patients is between the physician and the patient. And while we do see incredible innovations in difficult-to-treat diseases, as you mentioned, there's a need to differentiate above and beyond the product, and we need to be able to balance this innovation with the overall healthcare ecosystem, which includes spending. You know, having done this as long as you've done this, one of the things that I have heard you speak about is your steps to create a value-based process or a value-based contract. You know, you kind of have worked out a process at, at this juncture. There's many steps that are involved. I'll just give you a high level kind of what are the key elements. At the core of the agreement has to be some program of data collection, and this is really critical. The program has to be able to collect data. And when I say program, I mean between the payer and the manufacturer. So the payer is going to need to be able to collect data and a certain type of data, which we'll get into a little bit later. One also needs to really understand the publicly available literature on the specific disease area and treatments, which will help contribute to the appropriate patient population and the relevant outcomes for the agreement. It's important just to know what's already been out there. And so whatever you can find in the public domain will help you put together potentially a new outcomes-based or value-based agreement. You also have to have a very thorough review of the product's efficacy and effectiveness. And I say those two words for a reason, because efficacy of a product is demonstrated in controlled clinical trials, whereas effectiveness demonstrates how a product works in the real world in patients who are generally sicker, who have additional diseases and comorbidities, and take several different types of medications for various disorders. So effectiveness demonstrated in the real world is not always the same as was demonstrated in a very controlled clinical trial. So it's really important to understand the product's effectiveness so that both sides of the agreement, the payer and the manufacturer, can accurately evaluate the level of risk these types of agreements should entail. Obviously, we need an agreement that should involve a product available on the market that has FDA regulatory approval, and then linking the price or the reimbursement to outcomes selected and observed in in the data collection. So one has to be able to not only evaluate what's going to go into this contract or agreement, but also be able to monitor it and report on the results throughout the agreement. So those are some of the key steps. There's many others that are involved, but I think those are some basic elements of a value-based contract that people should be aware of. We've got step one, make sure that you have a data exchange set up. Number two, you got to make sure that you're looking at available literature. And I'm assuming that you're doing that. So you're you're pretty confident that the agreement is going to be a success, you know, based on historical evidence. Well, success really just means the ability, the feasibility of to be able to implement one, not the actual outcome of whether or not an additional reimbursement or price reimbursement is provided from the manufacturer to the payer. It's really the ability to, number one, collect the information. And let's just take adherence as an example. There's a lot of literature out there on how to measure adherence or persistence using pharmacy claims data and medical claims data. So it's important that one understands that literature because it's been done before. There's no need to reinvent how that is measured. 
that's just one example of what you would find in the literature if you were to go to it and looking how to measure adherence. And that could be something that could be implemented into a value-based contract. Got it. So number one is the data, but number two is like, look at the available literature so you understand how to structure this thing. Right. And number one is really, when you say exchange of data, there's kind of two components to that. One is the ability of the payer to actually capture information, whether that be pharmacy or medical administrative claims, whether that be patient reported outcomes, whether that be electronic medical health records. And then in terms of exchange, there has to be some method of each party being able to look at de-identified data. So obviously, these databases must be HIPAA compliant so that no patients can be identified. But one has to be able to validate the findings and, you know, look at the trends over time to see how the the contract is performing. And the way to do that is to have some sharing of de-identified data. Okay, so the sharing of de-identified data, making sure we got the study structure based on best practices. And then number three, obviously, we got to know, review the efficacy and effectiveness of the drug so that we can be confident that what we're doing here has the best chances of succeeding. And then it's got to be FDA approved for obvious reasons. The number five, monitoring and reporting is clearly super important because there's money being exchanged based on what's going on. So if we're not clear on what transpired and the outcomes that actually are achieved in a way that everybody can agree on, that's going to cause some issues. Correct. For each one of these different steps, how long do they tend to take? What are the barriers or issues that you might have encountered along the way? What advice might you have? A lot of lessons learned over time. I think, you know, to start off with, the complexity of the disease area and the treatment patterns is going to be really a critical factor in whether the program's a success or not. And the reason why is that let's say that the outcome of interest is a survival benefit based off of a medication used to treat a different cancer tumor type. Well, that outcome can be short-term or it could be very long-term. If it's long-term, first of all, the capture of survival data is not necessarily in all databases, and you may need to actually have to link two databases in order to determine survival benefit or, you know, the duration, sort of the durability of that product. And the treatment patterns, if you have medications that you want to look at to treat a certain condition, and they're available in both oral formulations, so pill formulations, and either self-injectable or infusible medications, you are going to need different types of data to collect both. So the oral or the pill form medication would be collected through a pharmacy database, and then if it's physician-administered, that's likely to be collected in a medical claim rather than a pharmacy claim. So you can start seeing here how depending upon the disease area and the types of treatments that are involved, that alone can determine, you know, sort of the complexity as well as, you know, the length that goes into how long of one of these contracts should last. I've never seen one of these contracts last less than a year. Generally, on average, these contracts will run for one to two years sometimes more. And the main reason for that is many outcomes generally take that amount of time either to occur or one needs to have enough patients within the database to see enough events to 
detect whether or not there is a difference between the two cohorts of interest or the two medications, let's say, or medication classes. That's another critical piece. Yeah, and I could also see there that you don't want it to run any less than that because obviously there's some structural and setup that's required and it's kind of, I don't know, it, it just doesn't strike me as something that you'd want to do the setup that's required for and then have a runtime that was super short. Yes, and it doesn't make sense. I mean, we can keep going back to the adherence example. If you're going to be comparing two different medications in the treatment of a disease area, you want to ensure that you are comparing, you know, apples to apples and not apples to oranges. So you'd want a similar level of adherence to give both products the best chance at achieving the outcome of interest. And so that means that you need to look at adherence over time before you can look at the actual outcome. The outcome could be adherence, but that was really the first and simplest form of a value-based agreement. And now we've gone beyond that, and now we're looking at things like disease-related hospitalizations, emergency room visits, and those kinds of things. You need to be able to look at adherence, generally speaking, no less than over a six-month period of time. And that's really why it gets to that one year or longer. That's really important. Yeah. So my my takeaway from what you just said is that the devil's in the details. <laughs> so really to work through them. Absolutely. And before you get to those details, it's just really critical that you have interest on both parties, both from a senior level uh, as well, senior leadership level, as well as the people who are actually going to be doing the work, because you could get pretty far down the road in having some discussions but if the senior stakeholders on each side of the agreement are not in support, then you're just potentially wasting some time in trying to get, you know, involving a lot of people and a lot of details that, you know, ultimately might not get signed. And to that point, you know, outside of the senior leadership, really have to be involving medical, legal, regulatory, compliance, and your contracting people on both sides from the very beginning so that you're not introducing an agreement that's already agreed upon between the payer and the manufacturer at the end. They really need to come to the table from the very beginning so they understand every step of the process and you don't run into those any types of sort of barriers that you could have either maybe stopped the discussions where they were or you could have resolved them and moved on from there. Yeah, and I think what you say is very pertinent, not only to value-based contracting or innovative contracting, but also just in innovation in, in general. If you have stakeholders, especially those in leadership positions who are very passionate and, and have the will that they want to see this through, then where there's a will, there's a way that you encounter an obstacle and you'll figure out how to get around it as opposed to people who are kind of half-heartedly going along and the first little knee-high wall they encounter, they're like, oh, we're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. And, and the last two I'll just mention is that very clear agreement on the outcomes of interest and the financial risk sharing has to be clearly outlined. It has to be so clearly outlined that somebody else, you know, somebody could leave the organization, somebody else come into the organization, pick up the agreement and reproduce it. It has to be very difficult to interpret in any other way, so difficult to manipulate. And then, as we discussed, measured appropriately, you know, for the correct time period. And then resources, both, you know, human and sometimes financial to execute, implement and monitor these agreements. And kind of given what we just talked about, 
the average length of time is generally about six to nine months to actually get to a point where a payer and a manufacturer could sign an agreement. I mean, it's possible that it could be done a little bit quicker than that or a little bit longer than that. It just depends on those steps and how quickly some of those barriers could be overcome. Interesting. So basically, when you start talking about a value-based agreement, effectively what you're talking about is probably the following year's agreement, not this calendar year's. Exactly. And it's even important, you know, if we're talking about a drug that's already on the market, one could discuss one that's anticipated to be approved, its potential. And with that, you might want to discuss what are the outcomes of interest to that payer and that payer's population and such that the manufacturer can consider including some of those outcomes early on in some of their early clinical trial programs to get a sense of if this outcome is important to a payer that we might use at a later point for a value-based agreement or a value-based contract, it would be important to know that early. And that should actually be done anyway, regardless of whether or not a value-based contract is is a potential or is an opportunity is we should be measuring outcomes that are of interest to the payer, the provider, and of course the patient. Yeah, and that's often been said that, you know, within the drug approval process, you got to get stakeholders involved earlier, which ultimately connects the dots faster to patient outcomes that matter. Absolutely. And patient outcomes that you may not, in fact, capture in the clinical trial program and that you might want to plan for in terms of real-world evidence studies once the product is approved on the market. And so the earlier these conversations can happen when they're appropriate and as appropriate, the better. Let's just talk about kind of that wrapped up into a larger question. What's the current, in your opinion, uptake of these ideas? How widespread do you think this thinking is? And do you feel like interest in all the ideas and best practices that you just stated is growing? And I ask this because the whole, you know, innovative contract slash sharing slash all of the vocabulary words that you used earlier in the pharmaceutical business has been about as quick as a snail in being adopted by the industry. So for what reasons, if you believe that the pace is accelerating, do you think that this is so? Yeah, I definitely think the pace is accelerating. I think it did feel like a snail's pace maybe 10 years ago, but I think in the last year to a couple of years, we've really seen more of a shift or an increase in these types of agreements. And I think it's really because it's a, it's a shift towards real-world demonstration of effectiveness. And I think there's a couple of reasons why we're seeing growing interest in the U.S., and I don't see any of these reasons that I'm going to mention going away. As we continue to have innovation, uh, there's going to be increasing costs for this type of innovation, and it's going to place pressure, as it is today, on patients, caregivers, providers, and payers. I think there is also a desire to move away from treating entire, you know, different types or heterogeneity of treatment populations more to a targeted, what is also known as sort of precision medicine type therapy for appropriate patients. I think we're also seeing that payers are aspiring to have more of these agreements for a couple of reasons. One is that it links payments to outcomes to ensure that they're actually receiving real-world value for their money for the product. And also, payers need to manage a patient population. So the better that they can manage their patient population, 
or improve outcomes of their patient population at a lower cost, the more competitive they'll be in the health care insurance marketplace. And then it also, I think, helps incentivize manufacturers to continue not only to innovate, but also to continue to look for the right drug for the right patient at the right time. And so it's identifying those patients who will be most likely to receive value from that drug therapy. Yeah, from the pharma perspective, it could be interesting division between there's a lot of incentive to create a me too type product. But what this does is really puts a spotlight. I mean, it's not like the spotlight isn't on already to create products which patients and providers and and other stakeholders within the care continuum really want or desperately need. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that outside of value-based contracts, we're seeing more and more types of health technology assessment, which has been around for decades in countries outside of the U.S., like in the U.K. and France and Germany, we're seeing groups or organizations like that pop up in the U.S. And I think that's because there is so many different treatment options and innovation is becoming very expensive. And we're seeing organizations try to reconcile value and price of a product. And so I think you know, this the value-based contracting offers another opportunity to help guarantee the performance of your product alongside of, you know, now we're seeing independent organizations tell you what the value is based on publicly available information. Once all of this data is widely available, the imperative to actually have a validated way to, you know, prove outcomes. And, and you know, it kind of necessitates a little bit of a change in the business model. And I think that's why we've sort of seen it kind of come and go, as you mentioned, where there was a period of time, maybe in, let's say, the early 2000s, where some of this started to come to the surface. And then it, I would say, died down a little bit. And now in the last year or two, we're seeing a lot more action on manufacturers and payers to come up with these different types of innovative contracting agreements. I really believe that at this point, there's been enough demonstration to suggest that it's here to stay. And what we see in the public domain is only what we see that's been released to the public domain. There's a number of these agreements that are not made public. And I know that from a lot of speaking that I've done and talking to different representatives from both health plans and from manufacturers is that when I mentioned before that a payer needs to manage their own patient population at a cost, they want to improve their outcomes. And so if they can come to an agreement with the manufacturer, that will make them more competitive by keeping their patient population well and controlling them at a lower cost. And so I think that the difficulties that we saw early on in the early days of this was due to feasibility and really capability of both sides of the agreement to execute, monitor, and interpret the outcomes. But now we're seeing that this has been done and can be, you know, can be replicated and we're seeing more organizations become comfortable with it. Now we're seeing the uprise more. 
Yeah, and that's an interesting point that you just made. So for those who are searching the public domain for information about innovative contracts and assuming that they're seeing the total universe of contracts that have been signed, that might be misleading. Because if we're talking about competitive advantages or differentiations, it's not like you're going to necessarily broadcast your secret sauce. Definitely. It just depends on the agreement. It could be the health plan that chooses to keep it confidential. It could be that it's their first program and they are piloting it to make sure that it's feasible to conduct. There's a number of reasons why, and I just think it's important for people listening to the podcast, if they go to the public literature and the public domain, is not to be surprised. The number is much larger than what you're seeing in the public domain. And speaking of examples that are in the public domain, I am hoping that you might have a couple which you feel are representative of some of the things that we have talked about earlier. I can give a couple of examples. Uh, The company that I work for, which is EMD Serono, a business of Merck KGAA out of Darmstadt, Germany, we were an early leader in this space, at least to our knowledge. Again, some things could be confidential that we weren't aware of, but we had some early value-based contracts for Rebif, which is a therapy to treat relapsing multiple sclerosis or MS. We had a contract that was signed in 2011 with Cigna where we measured MS-related emergency room visits or MS-related hospitalizations avoided, as well as adherence for our product versus the class of disease-modifying treatments for MS, uh, relapsing MS. And so it was really important that we were able to capture both pharmacy and medical claims because we needed to look at adherence. We needed to look at ICD-9 codes associated um, with hospitalizations or emergency room visits that would be tied to an MS reason. So the reason that they were hospitalized or went to the emergency room was an exacerbation of their underlying MS-related disease that whatever therapy they were on either was or was not controlling for. And we, we determined that this agreement was a success given that we were able to not only implement the agreement, but we're also able to see a demonstrated decrease in hospitalizations and emergency room visits associated uh, with MS versus Rebif for, uh, versus other disease-modifying drugs. And then more recently, I think it's appropriate to mention that in 2016 and 2017, if we want to look at a health plan as an example, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare has publicly signed at least five agreements that I've seen with manufacturers in different areas. And these include specialty areas such as rheumatoid arthritis, also, though, primary care conditions such as diabetes and hypercholesteremia, among others. And so we're seeing the patient populations of these agreements either be very large in volume in terms of number of patients, whether it's in the primary care or in specialty where the medications could be very expensive. And so there, it's interesting to note the different kinds of patient populations and, and the range of those And also important to understand, you know, the outcomes measures within each of those, because that can teach you something about agreements maybe that are in a new space. And as I mentioned before, you know, you can learn something from already available, publicly available value-based contracts so that if you're planning on one, uh, hopefully you can take some lessons from ones that that are either in progress at the moment or have been completed. And you can look at some of the results, the outcomes, and the challenges that we're seeing in those agreements. 
Obviously, if you're working with an organization like Harvard Pilgrim, which clearly has is ramping up and has a bunch of experience doing in, in contracts such as this, it's going to be a whole lot easier than if you're working with a newbie. Um, but you know, h- how does your action plan or the action plan of those interested in pursuing an innovative contract, how does it change for different kinds of payers or other stakeholders, maybe not even necessarily along the experience continuum, but just maybe along the business continuum? Sure, sure. So it's really going to vary in terms of from a manufacturer standpoint, you know, where is the product in its life cycle? Is it already on the market or are you evaluating outcomes to incorporate into your clinical trial program that you may use once and if the product is FDA approved and available on the market? And also, you know, it depends on the needs of the stakeholders. So one has to, and when I say one, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speaking from a manufacturer's point of view, is one needs to understand what does the stakeholder need? And if you don't understand that, then you're almost setting yourself up for failure because it's going to vary depending upon the stakeholder. So, for example, if a manufacturer were to set out to discuss a potential value-based contract with a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM, you would want to go to them to talk to them about outcomes associated only with pharmacy claims because it's the likely situation that they do not have access to the medical claims. It could be, but it's just important to understand if you go to a PBM and you're saying, well, we want to measure this outcome and it's based off of electronic medical health records or it's based on medical claims, that might not be feasible from the very beginning. And so it's it's important to to understand that. And it's also important to understand the type of outcome. For example, we could talk about two different things. One, maybe let's just talk about diabetes, for example, and you need to understand or say your outcome of interest is the HB1ACs, which is looking at levels over time. And if you're looking at a health plan database, you need to understand if that data from the laboratory records is normalized so that when you look at a number or a unit, you know, five units, that five units means the same thing across the board in laboratory claims. Same thing could be said about an image, let's say an MRI of the brain or of another body part. That is often in free text and could be noted by the radiologist with some additional notes by the physician. Then that means you're going to need to be able to collect EMR or electronic medical health records. And that comes with a slew of challenges on how to normalize that data, and sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. So number one, it's really important to know who your stakeholder is and then understand their needs and then understand their capabilities and the types of data that they're able to collect. It really does sound like by aligning incentives across value-based contracts participants that this on a larger scale really could help accelerate or, or at least focus on the pursuit of patient outcomes. Do you see it that way as well? I do. I definitely see this as part of the bigger solution. Back to my earlier comment around the healthcare ecosystem is that we will see innovation in difficult to treat diseases. And I think we'll see this continue to rise. 
and the manufacturer costs and research and development of these types of specialty medications and these types of difficult-to-treat diseases will continue to be high. But we need to be able to support, you know, the overall healthcare ecosystem. So I think while improving patient outcomes remains the goal, these types of agreements or value-based contracts can be utilized as one piece to support this goal. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Julie. Thank you very much, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.